Uh, Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, beginning at verse 1. Hear God's word. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down today, come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The entrance of His Word gives light and understanding to the simple. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask that You would give us understanding by it. I ask that You would sanctify my sinful lips, that they might proclaim Your truth, that You would keep me from error, and that, Lord, may You use Your Word to teach and instruct and to convict us this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. But Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem. We've been away from our study of Luke for a few weeks, a couple months. We come back to it this morning and pick up Jesus, pick up this account, this gospel account, as Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. This is a journey that began back in Luke chapter 9, the end of the chapter. Luke records that it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up. That's his ascension. So when the time for his ascension, Luke is looking right past the the crucifixion, the trial, the crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection to to the to the ascension that followed that. When it came time for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. In Matthew's account of the Gospel, the, the history is grouped around the discourses or the teaching of Christ. And it's primarily uh, discourses that are addressed to the Jews to demonstrate that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And Mark's Gospel deals mainly with Christ's Galilean ministry. And John's Gospel, which presents Christ as the eternal Son, the Word, deals almost exclusively with Jesus' Jerusalem ministry. Remember, the, uh, this whole second half of the book is just dealing with the, the, the week uh, leading up to the crucifixion. And so Luke complements the narratives in these other two synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Mark, by tracing Jesus' ministry in Perua. And that's this area uh, east of the Jordan River uh, uh, where there was uh, wilderness going up to Decapolis. And, and, and Luke spends quite a bit of time from Luke... Uh, uh, um, nine all the way into chapter 18, giving an account of things that happened in this primarily in this minute in this area, and and most of that, almost exclusively, none of that is found in any of the other gospels. This whole chapter. So in this trip, uh, this that began in chapter nine, and there could possibly be three trips that Luke has has. Uh, kind of merged together into into one. Um, we say that because there are some other gospel accounts that speak of Jesus being in Jerusalem on different occasions. Um, so whether this is recounting the final trip or whether Luke has uh, merged together three trips that involved journeys through this region, I, I'm not sure. But let's whatever the case, Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem in this in this whole section, in this account. Um, and, and this is where, this is the time in which he sent the 70 out. He sent the 70 out to go to the cities that he was planning to visit and that he would be planning to preach there. Um, this is the section in which he gave the instruction on the Lord's Prayer, how to pray. And there have been a number in this time, there have been a number of encounters with people and several parables about salvation. There was the rich man who went to hell and faced eternal um, uh, torment there. And there was the poor man, Lazarus, who went to heaven and was resting in the bosom of Abraham. There was the rich young ruler who came to Jesus asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, uh, well, keep, you know, the commandments, you keep them. And he said, well, I've done all that. And then Jesus said, well, then give all your goods to the poor. Half your goods to the poor. Or all your goods to the poor, he told him. And the man went away uh, sorrowful because he, had, he was very wealthy. And that wasn't something he was willing to do. He, he was really looking to, how do I add eternal life to all the other things I have? Not how do I... Uh, that, that uh, Jesus made that well-known comment about it being easier for a rich man, uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to be saved. Of course, Jesus was, the disciples realized what he was saying. It's impossible for, for anyone to be saved. And, and Jesus' answer was, yes, but with God, all things are possible. The impossible is, is possible. And so, now, Jesus saves a rich man. 
Lazarus or uh, uh, Zacchaeus was a very rich man. And Jesus was um, going up to Jerusalem on this journey. He came to Jericho. And he was going up. It was a rather public uh, trip. Uh, it wasn't like the other times where he went up privately and, and nobody knew that he was going up. But this is a very prominent um, trip. There are many people following him on this trip. This is... This is the trip where a little later when he gets to Jerusalem where the people line the street with their um, their coats and the palm branches and so on. They're singing his praises. Well, this is, a, this is something of this trip that, to Jerusalem as he's coming to Jericho. Jericho was a, known as a city of palms. It was about um, a distance of uh, six hours from, from Jerusalem. And, and it lay near a spring, uh, in a life, so-called Elisha Spring, and there was another spring uh, an hour farther north of that. And together, these two springs, through aqueducts and so forth, um, gave this city a, a, a tropical nature, a tropical climate, and an unsurpassed fertility in the soil, rich soil, all along this plain of Jericho, which is about, I understand, I haven't been there much, I haven't been to the plain of Jericho, but I understand it's about 12 to 14 miles wide. But, but a very fertile strip of well-watered land in a very uh, warm uh, climate. In fact, uh, Josephus says that even in the winter, people didn't have to wear uh, uh, much because this was a very mild and warm climate. So it was a, it was a bit, bit of an oasis. And the... Um, this is a well-known city, Jericho. It was uh, here that King Zedekiah was fleeing, and he was. It's in Jericho that he was seized by the uh, Chaldean king. It was here that um, three the, the people, the army, the group that returned under Zerubbabel. Um, there were other other instances under the Maccabeans um, where the Syrians had attempted to fortify um, Jericho and all those fortifications were then destroyed by the Romans by Pompey, Josephus tells us uh, but it had been rebuilt uh, by Herod and his son Archelaus, Herod the Great and Archelaus uh, so they built a palace there So because this was a, it's been a somewhat of a resort area this was a, it was also a very wealthy area Josephus describes it as the richest part of the country, a paradise, a little paradise. You know, beautiful climate, uh, mild all year round, wealthy, uh, fertile soil, and, uh, uh, and, and just wealthy because they produced a lot of valuable things. One of the things they produced uh, was this... Um, uh, the, the a product of the balsam tree and oil a balm they would they could cut the they could score the tree with it and out would come this uh this li- little liquid this balm and it was very um fragrant and highly regarded for its healing properties um, and Joseph just describes this balsam as an ointment of all the most pre- of all the most precious 
which upon any incision made in the wood with a sharp stone distills out uh, thence like a juice. And so this is a very, this is just a wealthy area. It's a, it's a nice area. And Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector here. So their, their taxes were a little different than ours in one way, and that is that they were collected by private people. People would pay Rome a certain fee for the right to tax an area. And so they had to then, they had to pay that in advance and they had to go out and, and get enough taxes to pay off their, their expense and then make enough for them to live on as well. And, um, it's somewhat like uh, bounty hunters today or the tow truck companies that have these contracts with shopping malls to uh, and, and to, to uh, police their parking lots and tow away any vehicle that shouldn't be there. Um, they, they probably pay or have some contract to be able to do that. That's the way taxes were collected. The people paid a fixed sum to Rome and then they went out and, and tried to, and collected the taxes. And the taxes under, in Israel under the Roman occupation were much like our taxes today. All property was subject to a land tax. That's one of the planks of the, uh, Communist Manifesto. That's how, uh, that's how you destroy private ownership of property is you tax the property. And it's how you destroy uh, inheritance, I meant to say, by taxing property. And many times people have to sell their inheritance in order to pay the property taxes on it. So that's the way it was in Rome, under, or in Israel under the Roman occupation. Every individual had to pay a, a poll tax. And then agriculture and commerce were also hampered by, uh, by excise taxes and customs and so on. And of course, Jericho being a very wealthy area that produced valuable things. It was a very lucrative place to be a tax collector, collecting customs and, and excise taxes on these things. So Zacchaeus was a the chief tax collector. There were three taxing regions in the area, Caesarea, Capernaum, and Jericho. And so Jericho was Zacchaeus's domain. He was the... Uh, he was the head, you might say, of the Jericho cartel. And he was a very, and as a result, he was a very rich, wealthy, and, and powerful man. He would also have been hated because many of these people, if they that were working for collecting these taxes, were perceived of as traitors by the Jews. These were people that had, that were collaborating with the occupying nation, with the Romans. And so they were not well liked by by ordinary people. They were looked down on as traitors, much like um, people would have looked on uh, Nazi collaborators in in occupied European countries, people that had sold out. And this was Zacchaeus, wealthy, rich, despised by his own people, powerful and very corrupt. So you wouldn't get to be chief tax collector of this region without being quite um, uh, ruthless and, um, and devious yourself. Right? Only the 
it's the most devious and the most um, uh, fierce people that get to be the heads of the mafia families. So this is who Zacchaeus is. When Jesus, when this big entourage came through Jericho, Zacchaeus was not seeking God. He wasn't seeking salvation. He didn't seek Jesus because he wanted to know what must I do to be saved like the Philippian jailer. He didn't even come like the rich young ruler asking what do I need so I can add eternal life to all the other things I already have. He was simply curious to see a popular person who was passing through his district. Maybe he was hoping for a taxing opportunity. I, I don't know. But he was a short man. And so he couldn't see Jesus through all the crowd. Being, uh, being uh, resourceful, he found a tree by the side of the road, a sycamore tree, and climbed up into it. It's a shady tree. has low branches, something that he could have climbed into. And then he watched as this procession came down the road. Or was it the irresistible draw of the Holy Spirit that brought him to that point as Jesus was going through? When Jesus got to where Zacchaeus was in this tree, Zacchaeus did not initiate contact with Jesus. He didn't start a conversation. He didn't cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me like other helpless people did who wanted Jesus' salvation. He was just looking from his perch in the tree. But Jesus knew he was there. And when Jesus got there, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down. Zacchaeus did not invite Jesus into his heart. He didn't invite Jesus into his life. He didn't invite Jesus into his home. He wasn't even seeking Jesus. But he responded. He obeyed the irresistible command of Jesus. He responded to Jesus' offer to come to his house. Now, we use that word offer, the free offer of the gospel. But we need to understand what we mean by that. That wasn't, that, yes, and yes, there are many places in the scripture where that invitation is conditional. It said, if you will. But we need to, we need to remember what this really, this offer really is. It's often misunderstood as being analogous to receiving an offer from your neighbor to, to buy some property or an invitation to dinner at their place. Something that you can accept or reject without further consequences. Somebody offers to, for you to buy some land they have and you say, no, I'm not interested. That's fine. There's no further consequences. If somebody invites you to dinner and you're, you're like, I can't make it, I'm busy, and take a rain check, there's no, 
consequences. It's your, it's your right to do. But that isn't the case with the Gospel offer. Those who do not obey the Gospel are destroyed. It's really like the offer of kings and ambassadors cannot be rejected without significant ramifications. Deuteronomy 20, um, verse 10 and following, provide an example of, of the use of the word offer in this sense. Deuteronomy 20 says, When you come near unto a city to fight against it, and this is dealing with the conquest of Canaan by Joshua. <coughs> When you come near to fight it, you shall offer it peace. And if it answer you peaceably and open to you, then let all the people that found therein be tributaries unto you and serve you. But if it will make no peace with you, make war against it. Then you shall besiege it. And the Lord your God shall deliver it into your hands and you shall smite all the males thereof with the edge of the sword. See, that wasn't an offer that these cities were free to accept or not with no further consequences. It was an offer, but it wasn't one that could be rejected without consequences. And they could, if they rejected the offer of... And this is the sense in which the Gospel is offered. It's a gracious and sincere offer. Consequences. The confession of faith describes it this way, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, by the co referring to the covenant of works that God made with Adam. Adam was the federal head. And God promised Adam life. God promised Adam life on the condition of obedience. But if he did not obey, there were consequences. He would die in the day that he broke that covenant, he would die. So the Lord was pleased, a man have, by his fall having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers to sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ. Wherein he freely offers. It is a genuine offer. It is insincere and gracious. Gracious offer. wherein He freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in Him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. See, part of the, part of the confusion is that many of the quote-unquote offers of salvation in the Scripture are in the third person imperative in the Greek. We don't have a third person imperative in English. We can't translate an imperative that way. Our imperatives are all second person. You, you know, we say go, that's you go. It's the person we're addressing. We only have a second person imperative. And so, what happens then, English, since English has no third person imperative, Sometimes the force of the command and the fact that it's an imperative is lost in the translation. And it's usually worded as let everyone. Or let, and let doesn't come across in English as, as an imperative. It comes across as a permissive. 
And so actually, what's a command in Greek sometimes comes across like like a not a command, a permissive in English. And so maybe uh, instead of the free offer of the gospel, we might talk about the imperative of the gospel. I'll just give you a couple of examples. There are numerous places in Scripture that in, that give this offer. And notice how it is a command. Matthew 11, uh, 27 and 28. You have this doctrine of God's sovereignty. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knows the Son but the Father, neither knows any man the Father save the Son, and to he and he to whomever the Son will reveal him. No one knows the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And then immediately after that is the offer. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, these are commands. Those are imperatives. Come, take. Or in Acts 17, when Paul is addressing the Greeks on Mars Hill, you men of Athens, he said, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotion, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship him. I declare to you that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he is not far from every one of us. God, in verse 30, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. Or, or Peter in his sermon at, at Pentecost in Acts 2. Or Peter, where they are pricked in their conscience. And Peter responds, and they, and they cry out, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those are commands to repent and to be baptized. And in, in one more example, in Revelation 22, uh, uh, verse 16, Jesus, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you of those things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And then immediately following that declaration is, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that hears say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. You see, the sovereignty of God in irresistibly calling and commanding people to come is, is put together and perfectly consistent with man's responsibility to, to obey that command to come. I'll just read a few more quickly. If Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the, from the dead, you will be saved. There it's a conditional. It's an if. It's a requirement. Or Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved. Look unto me and be saved. Or in uh, 
John 7:37 in that last day that great day of the feast Jesus stood and cried out saying if any man thirst let him come to me and drink now that's an example of of a third person imperative if any man thirst let him come to me and drink that's a that's a command it's a third person command come to me and drink but it's given in the third person meaning it's not specific to the people that were in front of him but it is to all of us to all who are in hearing of that word including us today Isaiah 55 Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live. And so on throughout these Scriptures. You see, sinners throughout the Scriptures are repeatedly commanded to incline our ear to hear, to look to Christ to be saved, to come and drink, to repent. They are asked, yes, if they desire to be made whole and if they would um, depart from Christ. They are invited with words like whoever will and if you will repent and believe, you are saved. But behind all of these is a command, a command that we reject to our peril. And so, we have in this passage a beautiful account of the imperative of the Gospel. Jesus came to Zacchaeus. He looked up at him and He said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I'm going to your house today. No invitation came from Zacchaeus. It wasn't Zacchaeus that was seeking Jesus. It was Jesus that sought and found Zacchaeus. That's why Jesus said, He's come. I have come to seek and to save those that are lost. I've come to seek and to save those that are lost. This ought to be you know, just an incredible encouragement to our evangelism. Because it's not dependent on how good we are at talking. Or it's not dependent on how persuasive and eloquent we can be and how hard we can guilt them into coming it's it's god's power that's where it's god's irresistible summons we're simply his mouthpiece zacchaeus responds like every sinner who comes to christ he obeyed he came down immediately he made haste and came down. He wasn't dallying up there, pondering. He, he obeyed immediately. He made haste and came down, it says in verse 6, and he received him joyfully. <clears throat> of course, everybody else complained that Christ was going to the house of a sinner and to be a guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus turns around and demonstrates the marks of true repentance. He gives a voluntary confession. And a voluntary offer to make restitution for what he has stolen. 
Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. Jesus never asked him to give anything to anyone. Jesus didn't ask him to give his goods away. He volunteered that because the Holy Spirit was working in him. And the Holy Spirit was producing the fruits of repentance. The fruits of his conversion. Which means that he was beginning to want to obey the Lord. He obeyed the Lord when he came down. And then he wanted to continue to obey the Lord. And if he had sinned in the past, and I take that not him not to be saying, well, I don't think I've sinned in the past, or I don't think I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation. Because, it, but rather, where I have done this, if in any case I have done this, then he's saying I will restore it. You see, the um, the tax collectors were known for extortion. That's how they collected their tax, and they would tend to get as much tax as they could get from people. It was a balance between the pain of collecting it and, and, and how much they, more they could get with a little more um, force at, and extortion at getting it. And when, the, uh, when John the Baptist was preaching, you remember the, the soldiers and the tax collectors asked him what they should do. You know, the, and to the, um, to the soldiers, he told them, well, don't misuse your authority. But to the tax collectors, he said, only don't collect more than what you're do, more than what's due to you, because that was a very common occurrence, and that was why they were disliked and hated. It was also why they were so extraordinarily wealthy, because they got their wealth by extortion. And so Zacchaeus is saying, where I have done that, in all those cases I have done that, I restore fourfold. He was offering. Restitution. That's what the Bible commands. Where we where we have stolen something, when we part of our repentance or the fruit of repentance, I should say, is a willingness to restore and make what we have stolen, make restitution for it. And how much restitution depends upon the circumstances. Um, if if somebody acknowledges that they stole something and they voluntarily bring it back, then the penalty was only, uh, I believe, a 20% added to it. In other cases where, where means of production were, were being stolen, the restitution was much higher, threefold or more. In this case, he's voluntarily offering to restore fourfold restitution. I believe that in most cases would probably be more um, possibly more than what the law would have required. But that's, an, that's a mark of true repentance, a willingness to go above and beyond what, what the minimum requirement is, a bill, and the, the desire to make things right with people, the desire of recognition of the harm and the injury and the tragedy that, that you've brought into other people's lives, and a desire to, to do your best that can be done to fix that. You see, that's a, that's a 
logically different step than the mere confession of a sin. It's a necessary follow-on to the confession of sin that we are willing to make a restitution for it. But also, I would point out the voluntary nature of his confession. This wasn't a case where somebody brought his sins to him. This wasn't Jesus pointing out his sins that he had done. This, the Holy Spirit brought that conviction and he voluntarily, voluntarily acknowledged the, his, his, uh, his guilt in this and, and made uh, a promise to make it right. And Jesus says, Today, today salvation has come to this house because He also is a son of Abraham. Today, that day, what, what happened there was salvation. The irresistible drawing of the Holy Spirit that brought Zacchaeus to that point and and changed his heart to make him willing to obey this command of of the gospel see it is an irresistible call because God is sovereign and he's the one who does the seeking and he's the one who does the saving but Zacchaeus was not brought against his will. That's a key point. Zacchaeus was not brought against his will. He voluntarily climbed down from that tree with haste. And he, of his own, received Jesus joyfully, it says, because his very nature, his very will, his emotions were changed. And he now desired to do what he didn't want to do before. Zacchaeus knew about the law. He would have known all the things that are required. But he wasn't willing to obey them before. He wasn't willing to live honestly and uprightly until God called him and commanded him to come down, commanding him to repent. And and so in, so then God changed His very will. And when God saves us, that's what He does. He doesn't drag us to Him against His will, against our will. He changes us so that we are willing. We are made willing in the day that He calls us. And that's a beautiful thing that when when we are subdued to Christ, we are we are subdued in our entirety, in our will, in our affections, our emotions, our desires, it's all changed. So that we, of our own desire, we desire now to come and to, to Him and to do what we didn't want to do before. And that's, a, that's an ongoing mark of, of being in Christ, is that His commandments, John says, if we love Him, then His commandments are not burdensome to us. And they're not burdensome to us because they're what we want to do. Than what we desire to do. It's I, I think this is just amazing uh, grace of God. When Satan 
seeks to conquer people, he does so by terror and, and he does so by extortion. He does so against their will. See, every, every other ruler, every other tyrant, every other uh, king has to make people comply against their will. I think, um, and, and, and so therefore, they, if, if they had an opportunity, they wouldn't do otherwise. But Christ, when He conquers and when He subdues us to Himself, He makes us willing in that day. So do not, brothers and sisters, do not despise the command of God to come, to make haste, to repent, to take His yoke upon you and learn of Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are gracious and long-suffering and that You give uh, many opportunities and many occasions for us to obey. We thank You, Lord, that You are long-suffering for we know that that day of grace will not last forever. But that day will come to an end. That day when You will judge the living and the dead. And all will receive according to Your justice. Those who are in Christ. That Your wrath has been satisfied by His death. And those who are not you will punish for all eternity. Oh, Father, we ask that You might, by Your grace, by Your sovereign, omnipotent power, draw all here. And any who You have not yet so drawn, Lord, may You draw them today. And all who are within the sound of this voice, may You call them irresistibly. Father, we thank You that Your grace is irresistible. We thank You that it is You that has has loved us and sought us. For else we know that we would never have come. And we ask that You would give us a, a burden for those that have yet resisted Your call, Your command. For You now command all men everywhere to repent. We pray through Jesus Christ, who has loved us and given himself for us. Amen.